welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deep values, what I call sacred values, and the people behind the positions and the professions that so shape our common life. I'm really interested in the values that drive us, where they're the same, where they're different, and how we can develop more curiosity and empathy for the people we might find on the other side of our very many divides. In this episode, I spoke to Satish Kumar. Satish is a really uh, legendary Indian-British activist. He spent his more than 80 years campaigning for nuclear disarmament, for global peace, for um, ecological and environmental issues. He uh, he founded the Resurgence Trust. He was the editor of Resurgence magazine for many decades. And he also co-founded the Schumacher College, which is in Dorset, and is seen as the kind of spiritual home of the British environmental movement. He's written seven books, and the most recent one is called Radical Love. We spoke live at the Realization Festival in front of an audience about his childhood growing up in the 1930s in India about the influence of Mahatma Gandhi and his ideas on Satish's outlook and his perspective on life. We spoke about his childhood, really um, from age nine, as a kind of itinerant monk, a Jain monk, and how he deals with people, maybe like me, who might respond to what he says with some degree of cynicism. There's some reflections from me at the end, and I really hope you enjoy listening. I'm going to kick off with the question I ask everyone, which might be easier for you, Satish, than it is for many people, um, which is about what is sacred to you. And this is really getting at deep principles, deep values, things that you have tried to let orientate your life. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, A sense of the sacred for me is to see life more than what we think it is. Uh, Life for me is divine. And we have body, of course. We are made of earth, air, fire, water. But we are also made of consciousness and spirit and our hearts, which are filled with love. And those are kind of divine presence in each and every one of us. And not only humans, but in each and every living being. So for me, a tree is sacred. Animals are sacred. Water is sacred. Birds are sacred. And I come from an Indian tradition where we worship trees. We worship River Ganges. We worship Mount Kailash. So nature is a divine gift to us. And and so they are imbibed by the divine spirit. And that's a sense of a sacred. Sacred is in life. A life is sacred. That's my sense of the sacred. So I think we sometimes, uh, it's not always easy for people know what is, to know what is sacred to them. And sometimes it, the sacred is kind of forced to the surface when we get in a situation where we are tempted to compromise on it or we're asked to compromise it. And we feel that deep kind of ick reaction that like no something is deeply wrong here can you think of a time in your life where 
that you might have compromised on what is sacred to you. And maybe you did, but maybe you didn't. But you can think about those turning points where you are forced to choose if you will live your values or not. I have been very lucky, very fortunate to have a mother who was a very spiritual being. And so from a very beginning, I heard from her stories, Mm -hmm. songs, and the way she lived, all with meditation, always going to uh, see the monks and listening to uh, spiritual teachings. And so from a childhood, I grew up with that atmosphere. And then at age nine, I left my mother, I left home, Mm. and I became a Jain monk. Mm. Without shoes, without any, any money, just walking, begging with food, and seeing the sacred in every moment of life. And that upbringing. So I've never felt ever in my life, as far as my memory goes, any time when I did not see everything sacred. And and I have a sense of the reverence for that sacred life. So everything is sacred, and I'm vegetarian. But even if I eat vegetables, I eat vegetables with a sense of gratitude. And you say, thank you, earth. Thank you, water. Thank you, fire. Thank you, food, for nourishing me. Uh, What can I do in return for you? So it's a kind of interrelationship, interconnection between all living beings around me and myself. I see myself in all living beings. And I see all living beings in myself. That sense of unity, which comes from a divine source, is for me a sense of the sacred. So I want to uh, really try and understand where this is coming from in you and the things that have formed you. So can we just stay on that? Before you were nine, you became a Jain monk. What were the big ideas in your childhood? And maybe you've said a little bit about your mom. What was your dad like? What was your kind of day-to-day world that was forming the man you would become? Um, Unfortunately, I did not know my dad very much because when I was four years old, he died. And I remember him vaguely, even now, his body lying in state. And my mother crying, my sisters crying, my family crying. And so I was wondering what is happening, what has happened to my father. So I asked my mother, why are you crying? Why father is not moving and talking to me and going for a walk with me? And my mother says, your father is dead. He will never speak to you again. He will never walk with you again. He will never be with us again. And that in a way kind of challenged me, even at age four. I did not understand what being dead means. And so I asked my mother, is everybody dying? Will you die? Will I die? And mother said, yes, we all die. Mm -hmm. And so that was a kind of trigger which made me think that what is death? What is life? From age five. And then I grew up with that thought in my mind. Age six, age seven, age eight. And then by the time I reached it, I met my guru, Mm. Jain guru. And I said to him, is there any way to stop people dying? Is there any way to stop death coming to us? And he said, only way to stop death is to renounce the world. I want to hear more about that because to make that decision age nine seems extraordinary and 
there, there are ways that that could have been a harmful thing. Uh, what was it like for your mother losing her husband uh, with, with a young child? Did that create instability? What, what was going on in the household in those years as you were processing what death is? Yeah. I mean, my mother was more wise and, and therefore, although she was very sad, she was crying and missing her husband, but she accepted that the uh, cycle of life and death is part of our existence. And therefore, we are sad and we feel sorrow and we mourn and we grieve and all that is part of human life and human heart and human psyche. But we have to also embrace the living and, and live in the present moment and not feel anything what has gone in the past. And death is now gone. So although she was in mourning and in grief for a long period of time, but at the same time, she was a very wise woman and she understood. She was a very spiritual person. This is why I said I got my spirituality and my sense of the sacred from my mother. Was she a Jain also? She was a Jain, yeah. So there may well be listeners who are not really familiar what that spiritual tradition entails. Could you just say a little bit about it? Jain tradition and Buddhist tradition are contemporaries. They started at the same time. And the founder of Jain religion was Mahavir, contemporary to the Buddha. And he started teaching compassion and love for all living beings. And so uh, he was the founder of vegetarian food, for example, in India. And he asked people to rise above ego and, and see yourself as part of the universe rather than as separate from the universe. So you and trees are not separate. You and other human beings are not separate. You and, 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 and gods are not separate. You embody a kind of divine spirit within you. So that kind of uh, teaching he started 2,600 years ago. And so that lineage had continued and, and, um, and my mother was part of that lineage. And so compassion, kindness, generosity, love, and, and without any discrimination. Mm. You love not only those who love you, but you love those who don't love you. Mm. Without any expectations of lo being loved back. That's the kind of teachings of, of Mahavira, the founder of the Jain religion in our time. And what in the life of an ordinary Jain, not necessarily one who becomes a wandering monk, what might be the practices or the, what would it, how would their life look different as someone who was a Jain, aside from the, the amazing ideals? Yeah. So first and foremost quality of Jain is to live a simple life. Not too many possessions, not too many accumulations, not too many gadgets, not too many things, but live simply so that we don't consume and we don't take too much time in building big houses or uh, having big possessions, having big business, earning more money, all that kind of thing takes you away uh, from all your time spent on your business activities and your money earning activities and so on. So reduce your external activities, live simple life so that you have more time for meditation, more time for singing, for mantras, for chanting, uh, for um, being in nature, walking. So simple life is called aparigraha, which means without being bounded or without being gripped by your possessions. So yeah, you are not possessed by your possessions. That was one great teaching. And secondly, 
non-violence. That was the most important principle, that you do no harm to anyone. Even the smallest of the small creature, you know, do no harm. See why I walked bare feet for nine years as a monk, so that even if I tread on the earth, I tread very gently. And even I had a little brush in my hand. So if I walk at night, well, I don't see if I can tread on something, I brush before putting my foot down. And in the daytime, whenever I'm walking, my eyes are on the ground so that I don't tread on any ant or any insect or anything like that. So non-violence goes much further than any other religion, I would say, in Jain tradition. Wow, it's strict. Yeah, the greatest religion for Jains is non-violence. Yeah, that's So with helpful. those two principles, uh, Jains have... It's a very small uh, religion, religion mm. uh, not many, maybe a few few million, maybe 10 or 15 million people uh, altogether uh, in India. But uh, it's a very kind of profound teachings. So you, at age nine, decided to leave your mum. Did you have, have siblings? Who, who, who were you leaving? And wasn't that, sorry, that's a double question. <laughs> but tell me more about being nine and deciding to become a monk and leave everything behind you. Was it? Lonely, hard, wonderful. What was the emotional experience like? No, no. I mean, I went into Jain monastic order with enthusiasm and and with great anticipation. And so it was not loneliness. And I left home. I left family. And I was a wandering monk uh, with a, a begging bowl. So you go from door to door and, and back once a day. So even from age nine, I was eating for nine years as a monk only one once a day, midday. No breakfast and no dinner, just midday meal. And for that I go, and, and I don't take food from uh, one house. I'll go for five or six or ten houses and take a little here, a little there, a little there. So a Jain monk's practice is to be like a honeybee. Honeybee goes from flower to flower, taking a little nectar here, a little nectar there, never ever a flower has complained that honeybee took too much nectar away. That's so because people have, like that. people might not have enough to give a whole meal. Is that the idea or is it about relationships? Exactly. exactly. Okay. And also as a monk, I do not want people to give me food then they have to cook again. So share a little bit of their meal so they can do without further cooking. And what was hard about that life? It was quite hard in the sense that for nine years I was walking bare feet and eating once a day and mainly meditation in the morning for two hours, meditation in the evening for two hours and, and the fasting once a month at least. Uh, and, uh, and so that was a kind of practice. But at the same time, it was a community and, and I had a very wonderful time. I learned Sanskrit, I learned philosophy, I learned lots of good things. So I was a student and my teacher was a great philosopher and a great teacher of Sanskrit language. And so I learned lots of things. So for me, although it was hard physically, mm. but psychologically, I was happy and I was very committed to that life until I was 18 years old. Yes. What made you leave? That was the influence of Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi came to me in my dream. And he said in my dream that how many people can become monks? Only a few. That means spirituality becomes 
only for the monks and it becomes very exclusive. But spirituality should be available to everybody, inclusive, not just the domain of few monks who become Jain uh, monastic, uh, monastics. And so that dream shook me. And I say, he's right. We are just thinking at the world as if it's a kind of a, a trap, a kind of um, sinful place. And we have to liberate ourselves from the world and find a kind of some sort of liberation or some kind of um, uh, moksha. And so that changed my mind. And by that time, my idea of death was also changed. And I understood that life is made of birth and death. So it's no big deal. And therefore, I, inspired by Mahatma Gandhi, decided to leave the monastic order. But once you become a monk, you are a monk forever. You are not allowed to leave. So how do I leave? So one night after midnight, I had to run away from the monastery, run, escape. And then uh, I joined a Gandhian ashram. And there I tried to practice spirituality, love, non-violence, as Mahatma Gandhi was practicing in everyday life and seeing that spirituality is not separate from everyday living. It's uh, your motivation, your intention behind. If you are doing something for money, for power, for prestige, for name, for fame, for some kind of recognition, that is non-spiritual. But if you are doing as a service for love, with compassion, with kindness, as a mark of relationship, then that's a spiritual. So spirituality is in your intention and motivation. So a business person can be a spiritual businessman or woman, or a politician can be spiritual, a political person. Like Mahatma Gandhi was a politician, but he was a very spiritual politician. So whatever you do, everything has a place. And a normal life is good life, as long as your motivation is not selfish, not ego, and not my success, my money, my house, me, me, me. If you move from me to we, and you move from ego to eco, then it says everything is spiritual. So that was kernel of Mahatma Gandhi's teachings. And that appealed to me very much. And so I lived in this Gandhian community, ashram, and, and that's where I continued my spiritual practice. I'm going to ask you something that sounds extremely nosy. So apologies, but... I can't help but think it probably took more than nine years for your ego to die entirely. <laughs> Can you think back to times where that was challenging, where you were either in the ashram, where the parts of yourself that which, which weren't motivated by love, which weren't motivated by the sacred or the unity, please tell me you have them or had them at some point. Help us understand those struggles and what was overcome. I mean, the thing is that I'm not superhuman. I'm a human. And therefore, a little bit of fear, a little bit of anger, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of ego, they're all part of me. And I have suffered from that. And, and, uh, and, and I have uh, gone through that kind of crisis in my own heart, in my own life, uh, that when I see uh, that I want to, uh, to do something which people will recognize and, and so on. Uh, so that has been part of my life. I don't, I'm not trying to be superhuman. I am human and that's a part of ourselves. But I recognize them because of my uh, training, education from my mother, from my Jane teachings and so on. I recognize it. Then I say, but 
Yes, you have this anger, you have this fear, you have this anxiety, you have this ego, you want to be famous, you want to rec- be recognized, etc. But it's all passing. It's all passed away. It's not going to last forever. So move on. So I have a kind of struggle in my own heart all the time. And even now I have a sort of inner dialogue where I, I always try to um, find a balance uh, between the two, between ego and eco, between kind of um, uh, desires and, and uh, let go. So that struggle is a continuous. Life is a pilgrimage. Life is a journey. It's not a destination that I have reached now and I'm enlightened and I'm happy. No, that's not the case. Uh, the case is that all the time I fail, I, fall, um, I um, uh, fall down and I go back into kind of crisis and then I come out of it. So my training and my childhood and Gandhian teachings and so on always helped me. And I've learned, you can learn to love. You can learn to be compassionate. Like you can learn to play piano. You can learn to play violin. You can learn to play cricket. In the same way, you can learn to be compassionate, learn to be kind. So I'm all the time learning and teaching myself and learning from other teachers how to cultivate my compassion and kindness and love and how not to um, be too angry or egotistical and so on. So it's a life struggle. It's not a, a kind of state of enlightenment. Phew. Thank you. <laughs> that helps me a lot. <laughs> I think it's very easy when we read or hear um, spiritual teachers, people inviting us into what often sound sort of startlingly simple principles of love and justice. It's easy to reject them because they sound impossible. And just lift it, lifting the lid a little bit, lifting the bonnet on the fact that there is a real human with a ego that you have to fight sometimes and fears that you deal with. It really helps me connect. So thank you. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about the land reform um, that that you were involved in before you went on your peace pilgrimage. It sounds extraordinary to me. Tell me what your teacher was doing in essentially asking people to just give away land. Yes, yes. Um, This was the kind of, you can say, heir to Mahatma Gandhi. His name was Vinoba Bhave. And he came across a time and a place where there was a lot of tension between landlords and the landless people. And they were fighting and the landless people were killing the landlords because they they were hungry, they were homeless, they were poor, they had no jobs. And so uh, in that violent situation, my teacher Vinoba, Gandhian, went and said that we need to solve this problem non-violently. How can we do it? So he asked, all the landless people in the village, how much land do you want? And there were 40 families. And they said, if each one of us can get two acres, which is a minimal, very small amount, but two acres of land, at least we have some source of food and some source of livelihood. And so Vinoba Bhave invited landlords in a meeting together with the landless and said, these people want 80 acres. Very any kind of reasonable demand. And you have so much land here. Is there anybody who can donate 80 acres to stop this violence and this struggle and this kind of crisis? And so there was a stunned silence for a long time. But after about five minutes, one landlord stood up. His name was Ramachandra Reddy. And he said, 
I understand what you are saying. Without my compassion of heart and my generosity, I want to practice that. And I will donate 100 acres of land as my gift to solve this problem of violence and killing. I understand these people are very poor and they need livelihood. And that was quite a miracle. Giving land, never heard of that. And so that was the beginning. And then Vinoba said, this is not a problem of one, one place. This is a problem of whole country. There are millions of landless people, very poor, untouchables, low caste, laborers. They have no income, they have no, no livelihood. So I need to go around the country. So he walked 100,000 miles for 12 years, asking in every village of India, north, south, east, west, and said, if you have land, give one-sixth of your land to the poor. And I represent the poor. And he was very successful. He collected four million acres of land and distributed to the landless. So that was a kind of, you can say, a non-violent revolution, a compassionate revolution. Um, so that, because getting land, four million acres of land from landlords to give to the poor, was, people can give you money, people can give you something else, but giving land is not easy, especially in India. And so that was a very big movement. So there was a kind of spiritual movement, I would say, movement of compassion. And I joined that movement and I walked with Vinoba and I went to the landlords myself and asking landlord to give land. And I also had sometimes difficulty in getting landlord to give land. I had to persuade them. I had to even some, sometimes kind of develop non-violent resistance and so on. But in, it was a very successful movement. What do you think were the ingredients that made it successful? I'm sort of wondering if I was a landlord, so, you know, you could imagine one of Nick's ancestors sitting here, however, however, you know, 200 years ago, and someone shows up and says, will you donate some land? What has to go on in that conversation? What does the asker have to bring? And what does the landlord have to have going on in them to make that something that turns from conflict to something that actually is kind of a, a force for renewal? Yes. Um, first of all, uh, Vinoba Bhave had a great example of Mahatma Gandhi. If Mahatma Gandhi could achieve independence for India from the British, from colonialism and imperialism through non-violent means and persuade the British colonialists to leave India without fighting, without war, without struggle. There was a non-violent struggle, but without violent struggle. So if Gandhi could achieve political independence from the British and independence from colonial and imperial powers, why can't we achieve the same from our own people who are like colonialists, owning the land and exploiting the poor? So that's a kind of imaginative space has opened up. Yeah. Something seems like it's possible. Yeah, yeah. So Vinoba said to landlords, look, if you don't solve this problem, eventually people are going to rise. And eventually government will bring law. Eventually, in an armed revolution, some negative things will happen. Do it voluntarily. Do it with compassion. That's a much better way. So he was like, and he was not asking land for himself. He was in a loincloth. He was a very poor himself. He used very little money. He was a saintly man. So he was not asking anything for himself. He was asking for the poorest of the poor, the untouchable, the lower caste of the low. And so that was a very big move. And then many people joined him. And he organized this land gift movement in such a way that you are given the land, but you don't own it. 
you keep it as long as you cultivate it and your children can cultivate it but any time you don't want to cultivate you cannot sell it you cannot buy it it has to go back to village community and village community will decide who can have that land so that kind of no ownership but kind of relationship with the land like a community land trust sounds land trust amazing oh there's so much in that yeah um and after that, you did the thing that you're most famous for, I think, which is this very long, many-year walk um, during the Cold War to, to try and raise awareness of the threats to the world and call on world leaders not to destroy us all with yeah. their nuclear weapons. And you did that really as a pilgrim, barefoot, asking for shelter, asking for food. Again, I'm just really interested in the internal journey of that. And you, you've said elsewhere, you know, when you, when you weren't given food, it was an opportunity to fast and to, to sleep outside under the stars. Going back to this sense of inner struggle and ego and fear and anxiety, when you did have times where p- people maybe responded with violence or maybe, maybe I'm projecting, did people respond with violence or with distrust or with um, prejudice towards you? Did you encounter that kind of resistance? I mean, yes, um, I encountered twice. Uh, Just twice? Twice, women. Wow. I could have been killed twice during that journey. Once in Paris and once in um, southern uh, Georgia in the United States. Can you tell me about those? Now, in Paris, I was kind of mistaken to be an Algerian. And at that time, there was a struggle between Algeria and, and France. And therefore, someone thinking that I was Algerian had a gun and, and wanted to kill me. And in, in Georgia, um, uh, in uh, southern part of the United States, I was thrown out of a restaurant at a gunpoint because I was not white. And in those days, and that was just after I had met Martin Luther King. And so in those days, was segregation and discrimination was so strong that Everything, schools, restaurants, um, everything was segregated. Blacks and whites could not go together. So that restaurant was whites only, and I entered in it, and I was thrown out of the restaurant. But on the whole, two and a half years of journey, I would say there were the only two occasions when I had a violent encounter. Of course, during other days, uh, there were days when I did not get food, and people would suspect, uh, suspect, who am I? Am I a spy? What, why am I walking like this? Why am I in that country? So they, they will suspect. They will say, no, no, we don't want you to in this village. Go away, go away, go away. And so I will leave another village or another village. So there was um, occasions like that. In addition to that, there were lots of physical um, hardship because blisters and, and knee pain and all that kind of climbing 10,000, 12,000 high feet, high mountains and walking in the deserts, no village. So sometimes no village for two days, three days walking. And so I had to sleep under the stars. And this is why I called my million star hotel uh, because I was very happy to sleep and hungry uh, because I was not carrying any food, just the water. And so I managed to go. But you know, when I was walking around the world, I knew there's not going to be a feast. It's not going to be kind of uh, easy. It's going to be hard. And, and I will go hungry. I will be without shelter. But I will be prepared to do this journey and accept difficulties, accept problems, 
accept negative experiences because I did not want life. If I wanted easy journey, I could have flown. If I wanted easy journey, I could have taken a car or taken a train or anything. But I did not want that easy journey. I wanted to work for peace as a pilgrim and go through Muslim countries, Christian countries, communist countries, capitalist countries, poor countries, rich countries, whatever you are, mountains, deserts, snow, whatever it is, I face it. I want to go through it. And, and that's the kind of pilgrim's mindset. Pilgrims are accepting life as it comes, warts and all, difficulties, problems, everything are part of life. And so that was my pilgrimage. And for two and a half years, I walked through 15 different countries and I delivered a packet of peace tea in the Kremlin, a packet of peace tea in the White House. I was received in those two big um, centers of power. And, and I met Martin Russell. I met Martin Luther King. I met many, many wonderful people. And, and, and so there were lots of hardships, difficulties, problems, but also lots of rewards. So together, I feel that I learned a lot and it was a great experience of my life. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, what it takes to grow the kind of character to be, um, to respond nonviolently to violence, to respond to hatred with love. And I'm very formed by the Christian nonviolent tradition and by uh, this phrase that I always come back to when Jesus says, turn the other cheek. He's not saying kind of passively lie down and get yourself beaten up. It's a very strong response. It's the 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 fight or flight response in us, it's, it's inviting us to resist it because it's neither hitting back or running away. It's standing your ground and keeping eye contact and staying in that moment, staying in that relationship, really. Um, but fight or flight is an automatic response, right? The, the, our threat response is not something we have much control over. Our fear of the other, our fear of conflict, our fear of en the enemy, our fear of um, violence... If we're, on, if we're functioning on automatic, we will either fight or flight. We will either attack or run away or sometimes freeze or occasionally fawn is the kind of new research coming out. And so there is, a, there is a something, that, some, something that is needed to interrupt the automatic processes. And I'm beginning to think for me, it's my spiritual practices. It's, it's the podcast. It's, it's spending time with people not like me. It's becoming more aware. It's time in prayer. What what have you done and what are you still doing that meant it was possible? I mean, when you're, as a gun pointed at you, there's not much you can do unless you have one and pull it, which you are not going to do because you're a Jane. Um, but uh, what, what has got you to the non-automatic response of nonviolence? I mean, first of all, my response is that I have to trust. All conflicts and, and wars begin in fear. And we, in, as a society, suffer from a trust deficit disorder. And so I need to cultivate trust in my heart. Even if it is... Trust, trust of what? Or who, trust of what? Or trust of who? Trusting myself, first of all, that I have courage, I have imagination, I have a creativity, I have a spirit, and I'm a divine being, and I can uh, serve the world, I can take care of others, I can offer myself for the world's goodness. So that's a trusting yourself, that I am capable of doing good things. And then trusting others. They are all divine beings. You are a divine being. Everybody's a divine being. If you trust them, 
that they will respond. Trust begets trust. Love begets love. If you trust them, they will trust you. If you fear them, they will fear you. So that's my sort of uh, conviction. And with that position, I move. And, and of course, as I said before, they always struggle. And, and the path of compassion and love and trust is not for the faint heart. You need courage. You need conviction. You need um, uh, resilience uh, in your heart, in your body. And you have to cultivate it. You can learn to cultivate courage. You can learn to, like I said, you can learn to play piano. You can learn to play cricket. You can learn anything. You can learn. So I've learned all my life. I'm still learning. Learning does not end. I'm still learning. I'm not, as I said, I'm not perfect. I am still struggling and still learning. But that is my aim. That is my conviction. That is where I want to move. I want to move more and more love. Even if I am hurt, cheated, I'm prepared to accept that, but not prepared to accept to live in fear. So um, if listeners are thinking, okay, I want to learn love. I want to learn courage. I feel like our societies have... um, we are, we are increasingly uh, bereft of morally formative communities. And, you know, for the, all the things they've done wrong over the centuries, religions have tended to be the places people learn this stuff, right? This is the stories and the practices that have helped form us in theory and sometimes in practice into people who can show up in the world and do good, as you said, um, to be part of the problem, be part of the solution, not part of the problem. What would you say to people who maybe don't have any don't have any connection with the faith tradition or wouldn't know where to start? What, what, what would be a way to start learning to show up in the world with love and courage and nonviolence that would be very actionable for them even today? First of all, anyone who wants to do that, they have to be aware of themselves and they have to, uh, to want to learn to love. If I want to learn French, then I have to want to learn to learn French. If I don't want, if I'm not aware that the French language, I can't learn. So I have to be aware that you can learn to love, you can learn to be courageous, you can learn to be resilient, you can learn to be compassionate, you can learn to be kind, and therefore I can learn. First, we have to be aware. And then you say, I want to learn how I do it. Everyday practice, how do you learn? to play piano, how do you learn to cook, how do you learn to garden, you do it every day, you have to cook, and the first time when you start cooking, maybe you will burn some food, doesn't matter, second, don't give up, second day, third day, second week, third week, second month, third month, you will become a chef. So in the same way, it's, it's learning to love is a path, it's a skill, and you have to try every day, you have to, get, to, to speak to your mind, Am I learning enough? Am I giving enough time for it? There's an inner dialogue going on. Am I living in love or in fear? Am I living in trust or in fear? Am I living in resilience or weakness? So this is a, and courage is in our heart. We all have been given by divine power, courage in our heart, imagination in our heart. We have everything. We don't need to buy courage and resilience from Marx and Spencer. It is in you, but you don't cultivate it. I don't cultivate it. I leave it dormant. It's just sitting there without being cultivated like a soil and you don't put any seed. Nothing will grow. In the same way, soil is there in my heart, but I don't put the seed of love. So I put that with meditation. 
Every day I meditate. Every day I speak to myself that how can I be a bit more kind tomorrow? How can I be a bit more loving today? How can I be a little bit more generous tomorrow? So this is a kind of continuous process. It's not something that you have arrived and now you are enlightened and it's finished. It's a continuous journey, continuous pilgrimage in life. Thank you. That is important and challenging. Um, I wanted to confess something to you, which is I surprised myself by reading your work and preparing for today, feeling quite cynical. And that's surprising to me because we have so much, I mean, I, we have nothing in common in terms of our life story. Mine is much more dull. But uh, in terms of our commitment to nonviolence, our sense of wanting to grow in love and courage in the world. But my background's in media and I sort of... Um, journalistic thing and I don't know whether it was just a heritage of that but I was listening to your Desert Island Discs from quite a long time ago and I heard the same thing in Sue Lawley and she's talking to you and going yes but yes but it all sounds very nice Satish but what about power what about money and I felt that in myself and I was curious what's going on that the fact that what you're saying and I and I spend a lot of time talking about why the things that seem too simple and too earnest and too nice and not sexy or new or complex, that they're like almost all the good soul food has terrible branding. And we need to retrain ourselves to see goodness for what it is, which is fascinating. So one, this must happen to you a lot. Why do you think that we react against things that sound too simple by getting cynical? And what would you say to someone, I'm, I'm feeling less cynical now, to be clear, but what would you say to someone... Um, who's having that reaction like, come on, Satish, this is like motherhood and apple pie. It's all very nice, but it can't actually do anything good in the world. It's too, it's not, it's not got enough edge. There's nothing wrong in being simple. Nothing wrong in being a mother. Nothing wrong in having apple pie. <laughs> nothing wrong. I want to be simple. Any fool can make things complicated. It requires a genius to think, make things simple. So simplicity is good. Motherhood is good. Apple pie is good. I want to have a good mother. I had a good mother. Why should I deny? And those who say cynically, that's not possible. We can't have a mother. We can't have apple pie. We can't have a simple life. We have to make complicated. We have to make everything confused, everything greedy. The power you talked about. Do you want to have a love of power or power of love? I want, I'm seeking power of love not love of power. I don't want power. Power over what? If I want power, power over myself. How can I control my anger, my fear, my anxiety? I'm in charge of my life. I'm a CEO of my life. And I want to decide what I want to do. Do I want to be angry? Do you want to fight with people? Do I want to be greedy? Do I want to do this? Or do I want to be uh, kind and compassionate and generous and loving? And I've decided I want to be kind and compassionate and generous. And I don't want to fight. I don't want to have this complicated power and go and become prime minister or become MP or become a, a kind of millionaire. I'm not interested. I'm interested in relationship. I'm interested in friendship. I'm interested in community. I'm interested in land. I'm interested in nature. I'm interested in birds. I'm interested and I enjoy them. 
What's wrong? Those cynics who say, oh, you are motherhood and apple pie. Yes, yes, I am motherhood and apple pie. I love my mother. I love my mother. I love apple pie. I have 15 <laughs> apple trees in my garden. I have an orchard of apple trees. And I make 200 bottles of apple juice. And I make a lot of apple pie and, and apple crumble. So what's wrong with apple pie? Let's all have apple pie. Let's all have good mother. Let's have all good compassion. Nothing wrong with them being simple. Satish Kumar, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. My pleasure. And thank you all for being here. So Satish Kumar, I had heard Satish's name, but it wasn't until I started speaking to a few other people at some of the events I've been at recently that I realized what a big deal Satish is in certain tribes. And in fact, at the Realization Festival, um, the first site I have had of Satish was of someone coming into the room and, and bowing down to touch his feet, which was a surprise and uh, quite foreign to me as a, as a practice, although it's very much not foreign and a gesture of respect in lots of different um, parts of the world and communities. Um, but as I confessed to Satish, and I can say it because I said it to him, I was surprised to find myself, um, yeah, feeling quite cynical as I was prepping for this episode. I, re- I read quite a lot of Satish's writing. Um, and I was surprised to find myself feeling cynical because I'm not that cynical. And I'm, tr- maybe I am naturally cynical, but I'm trying to be less cynical. And it wasn't, it was anything in particular that he was saying that I disagreed with, that in lots of ways, the Jane nonviolent tradition that he's drawing so heavily on and, and my kind of interest in and love of the Christian nonviolent tradition have loads of overlap. Um, I would have expected to, to feel more drawn. And so it wasn't the content or the ideas that I was reacting against, but it was more that I, I really struggled to get a sense of him as a person because what he says sounds so utopian, you know, so idealist, that if we just loved each other with radical love, if we just kind of lived these very simple, non-acquisitive lives, everything would be okay. And he's very hopeful and optimistic about the possibility of that. And it just, I didn't know what to make of it. I didn't know, I didn't know what, I couldn't get hold of who was talking, you know. I didn't know how to trust what he was saying because I couldn't hear um, who he was as a person. And so it was a real, um, it was a real joy to get to have a, a longer conversation with him at the festival to, to bring some of that into the room. And he said his sacred value was basically everything is how I would interpret what he says. That all of life is sacred. All human beings are divine beings, animals, plants, insects, that what is sacred to him is everything. And I am both kind of moved by how beautiful that is and don't know quite what to do with it. Honestly, what's coming to mind is the uh, in The Incredibles when um, Dash, uh, Dash's mum, uh, says everyone is special, Dash, and he says, which is another way of saying no one is. Um, is it possible for everything to be sacred? Question mark. I'm sitting with that. It was really helpful to understand a bit more about the Jain faith. And I did a bit of reading around it and sort of deepened my really what was quite kind of basic knowledge of Jains. And it, it really helped me understand Satish, understanding just how central nonviolence is to this tradition, just how much it's the sort of core tenant, the core belief. There are others, simplicity, non-attachment to possessions and emotional states. If you're a Jain monk, you're called to celibacy. Um 
it is different from Buddhism, but in ways that, um, as an outsider, it's hard to see like the very clear distinctions. I think they'd, they're, they're cousins. Um, but that, uh, yes, nonviolence, if that's the key thing you're formed in from age nine, of course, that is your, you know, that is your, the way that you show up in the world. And it reminded me of what I think is a, actually a quite a deep difference between different religions. And I'm not going to use the phrase Eastern religions because it feels a bit um, like a blunt instrument and like faintly colonial. Is it colonial? I don't know. But kind of Abrahamic traditions and then um, Buddhism and Jainism in particular is what I'm thinking of. Um, I'm not sure how this plays out um, in other faiths, but this sense within uh, the Jain faith and very especially in the Buddhist faith that the ego needs to die and, and that really that certainly within Buddhism, this sense that there isn't really a self. It's not about self actualization. Um, it's about realizing the oneness underneath us all that we are all connected. Um, and, uh, that when we kind of surrender the desire to stabilize ourselves and realize one person, a Buddhist that was speaking to at the festival said, it's really the more you meditate, the more you realize when you try and find yourself, there's nothing there. It's just an illusion that we have a self. And that's very different, I think, certainly from my tradition and my understanding of Abrahamic traditions, that um, just like at a very basic level, uh, the, the conception of the self and what we're aiming towards might end in similar places, actually, but um, that, that's, a, that's a pretty different orientation. And then, as you could hear, the idea of a nine-year-old wandering around asking for his one meal a day really brought out this maternal instinct in me that I was like, that doesn't sound good. Uh, and that, you know, that's just projection. Um, I'm sure. And a misunderstanding because he speaks of it so beautifully. It's like psychologically it was really healthy. He was part of a community. He was doing all this meditation. Um, and it clearly has been such a formative thing for him for the rest of his life. Um, which he then ran away from, which I just can't help but find funny because I have these pictures of like, you know, nuns escaping from windows. Um, I'll tell you when the interview shifted for me. It, it's, it's when I was kind of worrying away of this thing of like, who are you underneath these beautiful ideas? And he said, you know, of course I have ego. Of course I have anxiety. Of course I feel angry. Uh, of course, sometimes you want to be famous. And I was like, yes. Okay. Now we're in the room. <laughs> like, hello, real three-dimensional person. It, re it really shifted for me and I was able to go, right, brilliant. Satish, the human being, not some kind of untouchable guru. Um, and at that point, I felt much more able to take him seriously and to trust him and to be invited into um, the things that he was speaking of. Because he'd admitted something that, you know, lots of people struggle with. The thing about the land was so powerful, you know, asking landlords to donate their land and this sense in which actually class divisions are, are so key and we don't talk about them. Those with land and those without, with money and without, how hard it is to seek each other's good and to not feel threatened and resentful of each other. And the sort of powerful moral move of saying, well, we could descend into civil war or you could donate some land to the people who can't feed themselves and have no land. And landlords saying, 
yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I sort of imagining, you know, I used the, I used the name Nick in the question and that's Nick as in the current Earl of Shaftesbury in whose house the Realization Festival was meeting, you know, one of these great ancestral landed families. But on a simpler level, kind of where I live in London, for every person who has a property portfolio, if they've got 10 properties, could they just give one away? You know, could there be some sort of community land trust, community home trust that could manage those as a way of kind of releasing some of the pressure on the boiling pot of resentment uh, from those that don't have access to the housing market? Um, What would be the narrative of compassion? What would be the moral call that could change, bring that kind of moral transformation that Satish was not leading but was involved in? And then this pilgrimage, you know, I... I was really interested in where it was hard. And he's told, because it was a while ago, and I was told the story of the peace pilgrimage again and again and again and again. And it is a beautiful and inspiring story. But he always makes it sound as if, you know, everywhere he went, people gave him food and shelter. And he always says, you know, and when they didn't, I just took it as an opportunity to fast. And I laid outside in my million star hotel. And this posture that he has, that if you trust people, they will respond with goodness is so beautiful. But it it really does make me feel cynical. And so... You know, just hearing him say, yeah, they mistook me for an Algerian. I got, you know, attacked at gunpoint and I got thrown out of a restaurant in Georgia because I have brown skin. The fact that there's a realness about those situations that he's encountered, what the conversation moved on and what I wish I'd said was, okay, what did you do? Obviously, you didn't have a gun you could pull back and you were trained not to respond with violence. But what did you feel? You know, how did you overcome that moment? Um how do you respond to violence with non-violence other than just like shutting up and shutting down and going into flight, you know, self-protection, which is the classic instinctive response? Peace tea. That was, again, brings out the cynic in me. Like deliver tea to the world's nuclear capitals and ask them before they press a nuclear button to have a cup of tea. Is that going to work? And... Sometimes just like changing the imaginative possibilities a little bit, some kind of symbol, a different story. Like it's not impossible that someone could be all riled up and just remember the slightly strange smiley man who bought you tea. Yeah. I think the thing that really did challenge me was this, like trust other people. Trust yourself to be able to do good in the world. Complex idea, but trust other people. If you treat them with compassion, they will respond with compassion. If you expect them to be generous, they will be generous. And actually, I think I've experienced the reality of that. I even see it with my kids. Um, that the story we tell about what we expect other people to be like really, really matters because it changes how we show up and how we show up changes how they respond. And we can create these little virtuous cycles by choosing to go into situations that might be difficult or with people who are different from us and expect to see the best of people much more likely to respond. It's still not concrete enough for me when I'm like, tell me how, how do you become more courageous? How do you become more loving? You make it sound easy. It's not easy. It can't just be me who doesn't find this easy. And I think, you know, keep practicing, do it every day. But it's also probably because I think it's such an individual path that we have to find our own structures and rituals and communities to be part of. You know, all the great wisdom traditions have ways and practices that we can involve ourselves in, in order to be growing in this. And he didn't want to dictate them. And I sort of know what mine are. 
So maybe I'm wrong to be grumpy with him. But I want him to tell me how to make it easier. (laughs) It's the fundamental thing. And finally, he did respond really graciously and I think well to my exposed cynicism at the end of just, isn't it all just motherhood and apple pie? And to have someone say, I like motherhood and I like apple pie. And I think sometimes simple is good. Just reminding myself that we all have different roles to play and that Satish is is maybe reminding us of the simple basic truths of seeking to love one another and to resist violence and to protect the earth. I sort of want that voice in the mix, even if I don't always know how to apply it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred, recorded live at the Realisation Festival. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield. Our production team are Lizzie Harvey, Dan Turner and Drew Hawley. And our vocals on our music are by Lizzie Harvey. And the rest of the music is composed by Luke Stanley. The Sacred is a production of the think tank Theos. And we have a sister podcast, Reading Our Times, for those who like to really get into big books. You might enjoy that. You can find me on Instagram at Elizabeth Sarah Oldfield. On Twitter, if it still exists, at ES Oldfield. My substack is morefullyalive.com and you can email the team via the show notes. This is the last episode of this series with an interview in it. Next week, we will have a sacred reflection for you looking back at the series and pulling out some themes and then we'll be taking a break for the summer. Please do get in touch. As always, rate and review the podcast. I really value being in conversation with you. Until next time.